0: Check out mom's Don't Have Time to Write on Medium. And of course, my new publishing company called Zivi Books. And now back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids. Hi! Hi! Hello! Enjoy the show. Francesca Saratella is the author of Ghosts of Harvard, a novel. She is a New York Times best-selling author and columnist who grew up in the Philadelphia area and graduated cum laude from Harvard University where she won multiple awards for her creative writing, including the Charles Edmund Horman Prize and LeBaron Russell Briggs Prize. Her senior thesis, a novella, was awarded highest honors and won the Thomas T. Hoops Prize. She also performed in choir and musical theater, in particular the Harvard, Radcliffe, Gilbert, and Sullivan Society Productions, because she was very cool. By the way, I auditioned for a Gilbert and Sullivan play in seventh grade and was cast as a statue. But anyway, upon graduation, Francesca moved to New York City with a suitcase and a puppy. The puppy was her happiness insurance, and it worked. She began writing and researching her first novel, Ghosts of Harvard. While working on the novel, she also co authored a best selling nine book series of essay collections with her mother, best selling author Lisa Scottolini and co-writes a Sunday column entitled Chickwit in the Philadelphia Inquirer. I have like a million of their books together in my shelves from back in the day. Anyway, Francesca lives in New York with her dog Pip and cat Mimi. She is working on her next novel. Welcome, Francesca. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Ghosts of Harvard.
1: Oh, please. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored. My mom and I both are just total fangirls of yours. And I just, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you.
0: I adore your mom. She's amazing. (laughs) She's the best. I mean, the two of you really sensational. (laughs) Uh, We all have to like get together at some point. I guess I could loop in my own mom, but (laughs) (laughs) mother's day episode, something or other would be the best. <laughs> so tell listeners about Ghost of Harvard and how you came up with the idea for this book and what it's about. Yeah, so Ghost of Harvard is my
1: debut novel, my yeah. my first novel and it's just a long dream realized. It's it's been really special experience even coming out in this weird years that we've had. It's these virtual connections have just been everything. So Ghost of Harvard follows the story of a young woman named Katie Archer, who is struggling in the aftermath of her beloved older brother's suicide. Her big brother, Eric, was her hero. He was that gold standard by which she measured herself her whole life. He was a genius, a prodigy even. He made getting into Harvard look easy and it seemed like he just had the brightest future guaranteed. But while he was a student at Harvard, he began having mental health struggles, ultimately diagnosed with schizophrenia and sadly, dies by suicide on campus. Katie is really just has so many unanswered questions. She's so haunted by, you know, what, what could she have done differently? What did she miss? that might've prevented her brother's death. And she knows the answers are only one place on Harvard's campus. So she feels she, she attends herself. She's trying to piece together the mystery of his final year of how his life could take this unfathomable turn. And I'm sorry, my dog is barking.
0: My dog's like looking around like what? I know.
1: (laughs) And begins hearing voices herself. And then the new question is, is she losing her mind like her brother struggling from the same illness or could these voices be something else could they be ghosts anyway once she begins hearing voices herself she starts to question what would what what if i listen what if these voices could lead me to the answers she craves and the ghost she misses most her brother and then the question you know is is she are they going to lead her to that or are they just going to lead her down a path of her own self destruction so that's really it's it's a blend of a psychological thriller has these historical and supernatural elements, but really at its core, it's a family drama and a story about identity as much as it is about grief. Wow. Good pitch, by the way.
0: <laughs> that was awesome. Thank you. Well, except for the dog interrupting with the barking. So. Whatever. That's life. You know, <laughs> that's life today. Okay. So tell me about how this novel came to be. Debut novel. Right. How long did this take? How? When did you start it? When did you come up with the idea? Yeah.
1: I, I like, wrote I wrote this novel while trying to build the rest of my life and the rest of my career but over I wrote it over 10 years. It really took nearly a decade. But like I said, I mean I was juggling a lot like we all do. So maybe if I had been juggling less or just had better self-confidence I could have written it faster. But I went to Harvard undergrad myself and sat there was a sad story really that inspired me for this book which was when I was a junior a young man in my dorm died by suicide and he wasn't a close friend, but this was somebody I was used to seeing in the dining hall every day. And, you know, I especially someone who I never would have thought was suffering from what could be a terminal illness. And that's the cruelty of mental illness is that it's invisible. And with these high achieving kids, it's not even you have no inkling, you know, and we were all shocked and saddened. But I think as a community and even among my roommates, there's such a fear of saying the wrong thing about suicide or, you know, it comes from a good place of sensitivity, but it defaults to just compartmentalization and silence and quiet. And it got bottled up and put away wherever painful, complicated things do. And I don't think we really processed it together. And then the following year, it was my senior year, I remember reading, picking up the Harvard Crimson, the newspaper, and there was a little article about that that young man's little sister, herself only a high school senior at the time, had learned to play guitar in that year interim because her big brother was a musician. And she came to Harvard's campus and played a musical tribute to him on the anniversary of his passing. And I just remember the wind feeling knocked out of me of just, God, what was that year like for her? That for all of us where we could just have a painful thing and and shrink from it or have a, a walled up, you know, that compartmentalization, that is not an option for the family a tragedy like suicide doesn't happen to just one person in family. It happens to the whole. And what, how do you grieve when you don't have that community support and you don't have those, you know, people. And, and I was so moved by the labor of love that of learning to play guitar to coming to the campus where this tragedy happened and playing, even just playing for older kids, much less that, that heavy weighty legacy. And I was so moved by her courage and her love. And I want to be really clear that the book is absolutely not based on that family. I never did any more research into that family. It's not, I had no intention of, base. it's not based on them, not based on any real family. But in my heart, what I was so moved by was that the sibling love, and that's what inspired me to tell it from a sibling's perspective.
0: Wow. Well, that was really I mean, it's, it's haunting in many ways, as you point out, the, 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 what could you have done and the way that her brother had taken such good care of her and how she just keeps thinking. And I wonder if I, hold on, let's see if I, if I dog-eared a page to read a good quote, I, maybe I didn't, but how he had always been there for her, always ready to catch her. And yet then in the one moment that he needed help Right, like she almost fell off a roof once and he grabbed her at the ankles and saved her. And then when it was his time to sort of fall, she wasn't there to save him and how that stays with her forever. Even though, of course you can say it's not your fault and blah, blah, blah. Like just that, that residual guilt. And especially from a big brother, right. Who's, ta- who's you've been under their, their wing. I'm, for so long. And yet right. then you can't repay the favor. Anyway, it was very emotional to read it. And you got us right in the heart of the characters. And I found myself just so loving Katie and, you know, empathizing with her and just really liking her as, as a person. No,
1: yeah, Well, thank you so much. I mean, that, that's so gratifying to hear and, you know, I'm an only child. And I think that in part contributes to my fascination with that sibling bond. And, you know, what do we know better than that which we don't have but want? And I think I, growing up, really dreamed of uh, having a big brother was the fantasy because it is that protective fantasy and that those narratives we have around that type of relationship. But I think what this main character really has to contend with in, during the course of this book, and that's why I say the book is as much about identity as it is about grief, is that there's also her relationship with her brother was true and authentic And real and wonderful. But she also has stories about it that she is telling herself. Stories about her role in her family, her brother's role, her brother being the star and she being the second banana, but sort of a happy second banana. She Mm -hmm. liked being in that that shadow was a comfort. But now that his narrative has changed from stop being the superstar brother to a tragic story, how does that impact her? And that narrative about... That her brother always saved her, and then she missed her moment to repay him. There is an element of truth that haunts her, but there is also, as we see as the story unfolds, a re- com- more complications to that. You know, as
0: in any sort of loss, right, right, right. Some little bits and pieces of the relationship gets get completely magnified, especially in the aftermath, and others it takes longer to remember right. or or uh, you know give attention to over time, but I, I just, I thought it was really moving and, and great and funny too, by the way, uh, <laughs> I love her and her roommates and, you know, sometimes with books that take place on campuses and you can compare this to like Al- Alex Michaelitas's new book. And they're like all these campus books, but sometimes they make me feel old, right. Not, <laughs> not those two in particular, right. they, they, being on the campus in the character's eyes, I'm like, oh my gosh, that was so long ago, whatever. But this didn't make me feel old at all. I was like, I felt like on the exact same wavelength as this character, and it could have just <laughs> been me as opposed to looking back and feeling like, what? What are kids up to today? <laughs>
1: I'm so glad, right? Yeah. I mean, one, we're obviously we are very young, so of course we wouldn't <laughs> feel so old, right? but no, you're right. And I think I that's because I really wanted to situate myself in the consciousness of these, this woman who happens to be a college student, but not from any kind of place of condescension or even right. lovingly. So, but because what I remember about college and what I think is so key to this book is that it's this time where you really, you don't feel young. You feel like the most important and oldest and kind of like readiest that you've ever been. It's this weird, it's this strange duality. Cause as Older adults, we look back and think, oh, that was the beginning of everything. Yep. But to the student themselves, they it feels like the culmination. And it feels like this time in which every choice is so consequential. If I don't get the right, if I, hey, it starts even before they get in, right? If I don't get into the right college, my whole life is off track. Once I'm at the right college, if I don't get the, the right grades, I'm not going to get the right job. If I don't meet the right person, I'm never going to get married and fall in love. You know, it has this the stakes feel so high. And it—it it is a little, it's artificial where it has, it comes from a bit of a naivete, but such an earnestly held belief. And I think that's why some of these you know, different struggles or mental health struggles, or even just the normal struggles, like you said, with a roommate can be very fraught and very heavy on these people's shoulders, because it just feels like this is such a critical time. And that feeling of time closing in on you, both all the, the weight of your personal history. And then, you know, for Harvard, this enormous national history and legacy and the weight of the future this these pressure of expectations of, you know, this is your golden ticket. If only you don't blow it, that claustrophobia is what I really wanted to capture. Cause that's something that even before I ever knew I would write about Harvard, I knew, you know, it's that school is a character. The moment you step foot on campus, it is larger than life. It's larger than you. And I felt that past and future overlapping. And so I wanted to both represent the psychological experience of it and then have a bit of fun making it almost literal with these historical ghosts.
0: (laughs) It's true. I actually stopped and was thinking about it as I was reading. It's hard to imagine that the school predates the country. And what were those students like? Like, What was that like? And to have that it's in the same place. I mean, I know this is obvious, but I don't know. I was trying to like put myself back in those moments. Right. Because it's so challenging to wrap your mind around
1: that the school was founded in 1636. It doesn't just predate our nation. It predates it by a
0: hundred years more. Yeah. Not like by a year or two. (laughs) Yeah,
1: (laughs) This is really like the cradle of the nation of the, the, the plotting and planning and vision for what America was ideally going to be and, and writing that narrative, you know, they were writing the story of America and they were penning it from the beginning. And what I wanted to show in this book is how we have those personal histories and stories and narratives and we, these national ones, and we long to rewrite them and we keep editing them and keep tweaking them. But sometimes there is a real departure from the truth.
0: I also loved how you introduced a character right from the start, her aunt, Katie's aunt, who has a disability and is in a wheelchair. And you don't, you you treated that in such an amazing way. And like, it just is what it is. And she leaned over to say goodbye and da, da, da. And I love seeing that because you really don't see that many disabled characters in fiction.
1: Oh my God. I'm so touched and happy that you said that because you're the first interviewer who has ever mentioned it, but that was something important to me because it's true of my own family. My, my late uncle had cerebral palsy and, but was just still an incredible, awesome uncle who was a sports aficionado and savant. I mean, he knew so many stats and was really a cool and great person, but also struggled not, not as much with his disability, but with the stigma the, the society's reaction to it. Mm-hmm. I think actually that caused more mental anguish than anything that would have originated from his disability. Of course he was born at com- a different time. He, um, right. you know, in the late thirties. So this was a whole, he an entire different trajectory than we have today. But I think, yeah, disability is a, is a fact of every many families and deserves representation and love and characters. It's strange that we, I think it's weird that we don't see it more in fiction because it's just a part of many lives.
0: Yeah, I agree. I w- just love that. And I guess the last thing with all these intricate interpersonal relationships is is your investigation of how Katie's mom handles the death of her brother and her having to still be a parent to Katie at the same time and how even something as simple as being able to drop your child off at college seems insurmountable to her or that she can't go back or for whatever reasons and how their relationship unfolds. Tell me a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, again, I was so interested in how this singular event of losing their brother, the the son, this way would impact everyone and would impact them differently. And there's, of course, the ideal would be that when a family is impacted by a tragedy, that they could all come together and really support each other. And that isn't happening with this family. And it's not because they aren't good and loving. You know, that was so important to me is that understanding during the writing and research of this novel, that suicide affects so many families wonderful, loving families, good families, rich families, poor families. It has nothing. It's not it is not an indictment in any way on any flaw, but that it's such a complicated grief and it's such a complicated thing to process. And I think grief is an isolating emotion anyway, but then it's really magnified. And you see in this book how these family members think they're protecting one another sometimes from emotions that are being painful. They're trying to soften the edges for each other, but because they're still withholding so much and holding back up from they're holding back from each other, the pieces they think are broken in the hope that that's helping one, but holding back, it's keeping them all separated and fractured and distant. And like I said, you know, for my own inspiration, this book and drawing from my own experience, I don't have a sibling, but I do have a mother I'm incredibly close with. And the notion that I could be going through the hardest thing in my life and not have my mom to lean on and talk to freely, that was a fear I could very much tap into. I think that would be incredibly difficult. And that's what Katie, that schism, the the heartbreak between that she and her mom are not able to comfort each other for their own reasons. The beginning of this book, I think is really as much of a source of pain for her As the loss of her brother, even though she can't
0: really name it yet, right? Well, you lose so much, right? Because the family itself is the loss, right? You you, it shape shifts into something else, but what you knew is gone. I lost a really close friend to suicide a long time ago, and I'm still in touch with her mom and everything, but you know, it doesn't go away. Just you know, like it's still Uh top of mind all the time. And I do think it is a complicated grief that people don't know how to talk about, and find it easier maybe to avoid discussion, which is definitely not the right path. So, right.
1: Uh. right. Or you think if you, I have a I have friends too, and who, when we've lost them and you go, oh, I don't want to bring up the painful mm-hmm. memory if they're in a good place or something, but right. really the default is then you're never talking about these wonderful people. Right. Or what I think a great pathos of suicide is that the people who succumb to that are too often they they're named their cause of death, right? Like it's Mm -hmm. when somebody dies of cancer, they're not a cancer, right? Suicide. It should never be a suicide. That should never become a noun for a person. Yes. We want to talk about them in their whole life. They shouldn't be defined by these, this one final moment and mistake. And I, I was thinking very much during the writing of this book. And then even during this pandemic, you know, for this main character, the loss of her brother is that type of cataclysmic event, which in her mind, creates an alternate reality. Mm -hmm. Every step she's at Harvard, she's like, if my brother Eric were alive, he would be doing this. He would be helping me this. He would be turning this age. I think that happens with many forms of loss, but now I think it just happens with anything unexpected when we're really confronted with that loss of control. I've caught myself so many times this last couple of years being like, oh, if the pandemic weren't here, I would be meeting Zibi in person, or I would yeah. be doing, or I would be saying, you know, maybe I would be this farther along. I and that's why I got even the spooky physics of sort of really exploring alternate realities and other dimensions. And what does that feel psychologically? What does it feel scientifically? What does it feel supernaturally? That, those are the types of things I was interested in.
0: I'm totally fascinated by that, this whole like sliding doors. Right. Notion of life and mourning the life you could have led. Like what would it have been? What would these last two years have been like? What what would even a heartbreak, right? What would those kids have looked like if I had stayed with that guy? I mean, there's just it's oh, absolutely just endless. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. I also loved the moment and could feel it so deeply when Katie, when her dad doesn't tell her about her brother's loss and has to, and she has the amount of hours exactly that she didn't know that something had changed. And that feeling, which, you know, I think people feel with regard to major tragedies or their own personal losses that, oh my gosh, like I didn't know that life was forever changed. And, and how could I have been doing whatever stupid thing I was doing in in retrospect when really, the biggest thing of my life had happened, and I didn't know. I mean, that's something that I think a lot of people can relate to. Absolutely, yeah. Anyway, so yeah. Anyway, you're a great writer, and oh, it's, thank it's, you. That's really awesome. Wait, so tell me about Phil. You know, your mom. Tell us more about your mom. I didn't even explain your mom and her books and everything. So, <laughs> t- talk a little more about her and what it's like growing up with a writer and being a writer, and you know, all of that good yeah. stuff. So my mom is Lisa Scannellini.
1: She's the author of like 33 incredible thrillers and most recently historical fiction with her latest Eternal.
0: Which was and, so good, by the way. I loved it. Oh,
1: I'm so proud of her. I mean, yeah, just that was awesome. bubbling over, but the coolest thing that I always, oh, and also she and I wrote together a series yes. of nine essay collections that are sort of Humorous and and also really heartfelt and sometimes serious um, stories. Just of like life as a life as women. I have those
0: here. I have your essays <laughs> here. I should have pulled them out and reviewed them to talk to you about. But, oh, no, you're so um, sweet. No, I, no, mean, I seriously do. I, if fun, you gave me a stories. minute, I would be able to find them. But you <laughs> they have know.
1: silly titles like "Does this beach make me look fat?" Yes, and yes. <laughs> um, have a nice guilt trip. They're really fun and they're really true to us. And I look back on those and feel so incredibly blessed that I got to sort of have this living permanent journal. Like I narrated in my twenties and got to write about this time in my life and my relationship with my mom, and especially actually my relationship with my grandmother, who I was incredibly, incredibly close to. And I'm so sorry for the loss of your grandmother. Oh, thank you. Thanks. And I was so close to my, my, I also did a little nickname for my muggy Oh, mother Mary in the books, but she was muggy to me and was so precious to me and a real star in a spitfire. So she was, We had a lot of fun writing about our family. And I always say about my mom that the greatest blessing was I was born not to a bestselling author, but to a beginning one Mm -hmm. that I got to watch her build her career brick by brick and see the perseverance and the just butt in chair time that it took to build that career. And I think that was one of the most inspiring things because I think creative careers and like writing, they're so... They're so opaque. How does that book become on the shelf? How does a person get to do that as a job? And so to have it demystified, and then, like I said, just demystified in this really down to earth way in my mom, and it made it seem possible. And it wasn't a given that I was going to follow in her footsteps, even though we are very similar. Of course, to us, we think we're like polar opposites to everybody else. you guys, you're the same, but of course, you know, when you're very close, any difference feels like a grain of sand in your teeth, right? So we have our own little friction over the littlest things, but. It just seemed possible. So I I always say that she, the reason I'm a writer isn't because of my mom, but that I had the courage to try is entirely because of her.
0: (laughs) Oh my gosh. It would be like a dream come true if one of my children ends up saying something similar.
1: (laughs) I mean, if you read those essay books, we really, we have our moments. We call them our chihuahua fights because it's like, you know, small dogs are just like, you know, attacking each other without drawing blood. That's kind of, that can, that's a lot of times our default, but it's all with love and, and very much like with your, what I love so much about your whole series and movement and everything is that it's like, it might look. To me, you look like a superwoman mother, but you're so, you're revealing, drawing back that veil and revealing like the, the, the grit and the tough times and the blood, sweat and tears that go into it. And that's certainly what we were trying to do with our essay collections too. so many people. And it's really touching and honoring when people say like, oh, you guys have the perfect relationship or we wish, I wish I, that was like, oh my gosh, if once you read the book, you'll see it's not, it's not perfect. It's not smooth all the time, but it's still really authentically, fiercely loving yeah, and that's really all that matters, anyway.
0: Well, I think a lot of people aspire to that closeness. It does, yeah. I don't think people think it's perfect, but to be super close is something that not every mother-daughter duo gets. You know, it's just not.
1: No, that's true, and I and I don't take it for granted. And I think, and I think in part it came from some tough times we did have. You yes. know, um, yes. during not necessarily even between us, but just circumstantially, and being on that. Journey in this in this book, I dedicated it to for Ghost of Harvard. I dedicated it to her. And the dedication was almost like an inside joke. But I said, but it's not a joke. I mean, just really an in, I knew people might not get it, but I said, For my mother, you kept the rickety raft afloat. And that's because we used to play this game called Rickety Raft when I was little, when I was really little, like a small child. And she, she would hold on to me. I would hold on to her little shoulders and she were, and would bounce on her bed and we would roll around and she'd make it like I'd almost fall off the bed, but I'd cling to her. And when I look back and think about that, like I'm an author and even I would think that, that that metaphor in game was a little too on the nose, but we very much, that was a metaphor that was true. You know, we had sometimes stormy seas and sometimes felt like we were on a bit of a rickety raft, but I held on to her really tight. She held on to me. We held on to each other. And got to a much smoother place and everything. So,
0: yeah, (laughs) I do that same Um, thing with my kids, but we call it roller coaster. And I almost yeah. like, fell <laughs> off the bed, but I could probably use that met- metaphor as well. So. Well, that's
1: probably better because when I was doing the dedication, I remember, and I was, I wanted to keep it a surprise from her, but I ran it by one of her best friends and she was like tweaking the wording. Cause it was like, would rickety, does that make her sound old? If you call her rickety, like, that's what we called the game. The game was the rickety raft. I can't change it. So yeah, roller coaster, <laughs> that will age well.
0: <laughs> Do you talk every single day to your mom? Do you text all day? Yeah. Like what's your, yeah, all the time. We do. We do talk every
1: day for the proof of life call. That's what she calls it. Like just sometimes I forget. I mean, maybe it's not every day, but it's a lot for an Italian mother to have an only child alone in New York city. So she's,
0: she worries, but yeah, we just text. I didn't even realize you were in New York city. You could have come over here. I would love to have met you in person. Oh, we'll have to do it
1: for next time. But yeah, so we text, yesterday we were texting about Lady Gaga at the House of Gucci premiere, how fabulous her outfit looks. So she's like a, she is like a friend that way. And, you know, she's my first phone call when something really good or really bad happens. Uh-oh.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, my husband is Italian, and we have another dear friend who is Italian, and her husband, and we all go out for these really fun meals. So, we're going to, I'm going to grab you next time. Oh, that be a blast. Okay. <laughs> okay. Any advice for aspiring authors? You know, I love the book
1: in Lamott's Bird by Bird mm-hmm. and her section about, you know, that she keeps a, a one inch by one inch frame on her desk to just remind herself to just only write what you can see through that frame. And I think that's all getting to that idea of shrinking the day's task. And there's a lot of different ways to do it. You know, I learned from my mom to work with word count goals to sort of make the day's writing a more empirical judgment. Like you either wrote your 500 or a thousand words a day, or you didn't. It isn't just, am I good a writer or a bad writer or a good person or a bad person? <laughs> And I love that Dr. O quote. That's something like writing a novel. is like driving a car at night. You can only see as far as the headlights, but you can make it the whole way home that way. And it's so hard to not look at the whole project and to think of all you have yet to write and all the long way you have yet to go. And that's really paralyzing. And I can, I still feel it. I mean, my biggest advice to writers is that if you feel like you're bad at it, that doesn't mean you are bad at it. Like every writer's even at the top of their game feels like they're bad at it a lot of days. But a lot of times you feel that way because you're just, you're mentally biting off too big a chunk at a time. Love it.
0: Yes. Snackable bits. Very important. Exactly. <laughs> Awesome. Well, Francesca, thank you. It was so nice to meet you. I'm sorry we're not together in person, but next time. No. And I'm glad I could sort of close the loop on your, your <laughs> other spend half of our episode raving about you. So I'm like delighted that oh, now
1: uh, more, we rave well, about favor. you. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for all that you do for to foster this wonderful community of readers and writers and mothers and just women. <laughs>
0: thank you. <laughs> all right. Take care. Bye. Thank you. Bye bye.